Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world. From current events and trends, through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hello, and welcome to another edition of RazorWire. We're back with our regular piece with my two co-hosts, Oliver Rochford and Richard Cassidy. And this is kind of like a piece where we start talking about various different aspects of either information security or up-and-coming technology, or it could be kind of anything. And this is going to be a regular piece going forward. Now, today, we're going to be talking about generative AI, uh, a very topical piece. And I'm going to hand over to Oliver to begin with this one, because this is his his subject matter. So, Oliver, do you want to kind of tell the viewers a little bit about generative AI, what we're talking about, and, and what it means? Absolutely. I mean, you know, most people will have heard the, the whole uh, excitement and hype around chat GPT, generative AI, and so on. And the reason why I think it's a good topic to talk about right now is because it's starting to hit production. So we are seeing a bunch of vendors actually already integrated into the product. We're seeing announcement. It started at RSA, and it's just been increasing in the meantime. You know, we have Google, who are, who've gone very uh, conservative with their naming. It's called SecPalm. Um, we have, then we have um, CrowdStrike just announced their Charlotte AI yesterday. We also have Sentinel-1 with their Purple AI, and we have Microsoft with their Security Copilot. So they are the big players who've already announced this. Um, Jason Kirsted from IBM made an interesting comment on LinkedIn to me saying that if you look into the actual release notes, a lot of these are closed betas or you know they're early access, so they're not necessarily massively available to everyone. I think Microsoft is closest to that. Um, what's interesting are the claims that are being made, because if you understand what the technology does, right? These models essentially are trained on tons and tons of data, normally publicly available data that's available on the internet, things like Wikipedia, blog posts, and so on. And we talk about parameters. What's a parameter? A parameter actually is essentially a relationship. If you think of this like a graph network, each word can have a number of different relationships based on how it has been you know, read in the training data. And what an LLM tries to do, based on the prompt that you give it, it tries to infer the most likely set of words based on, on statistics that it thinks you're asking for. There's no level of understanding in this. And, and what's interesting about this, of course, is that adding more parameters means that it can be more precise if you give more precise prompts. You also have something called the temperature, which you can um, toggle. And you know, depending on which way you go, higher or lower, you can become more precise. So you can stick more to the exact statistic weightings. Or you can let it be a little bit more, I would say, let's say creative, although I don't like using that word. It's actually that it becomes the logic becomes fuzzier. Let's go that way. So that we don't don't humanize this too much, right? The logic becomes fuzzier. So when it actually starts to veer towards less probable things, that's how you can get like creativity it built into the program. So there are limits to what you can do here. Training it on more data doesn't necessarily get rid of hallucinations because the hallucinations are based on the fact that it doesn't actually understand what you're talking about, right? And hallucinations are essentially just another word for false positives. It's a pretty word. It lessens the impact of saying it's a false positive or a false negative, but at the end of the day, that's what it is. And so the question is, what can we do with this insecurity? What are the limits to this? You know, people are talking about this being the general step for AGI and, and that's not how intelligence works. If you ask any neurologist or anyone who's 
working in the cognitive sciences, it's an approximation. It's like cargo cult intelligence, right? And what I find interesting, the most interesting thing, is how fooled people are by this. It's easier to fool a person that a machine is real than it is to detect a hacker. Um, and that's the last point. LLMs do not do detection. Bad data in, bad data out, right? If you feed it bad data, the worst thing is it will hallucinate um, actual contents. And there's a good example of this. Pika Security released a research piece last week or the week before where they asked it for 20 MITRE attack um, um, techniques out of an advisory. There were only 13 in it. It just made the other seven up. So there's an interesting course. You need to you need to understand how to use it, but there's an interesting insight into that. But it's not really focused on truth or fact the way that a human being is. It's, that's not what it's about. Do you feel it's being massively misrepresented to the business world at large? You know, the the, the whole kind of this is AI. You know, because as, as you quite rightly say, this this isn't what I would term as AI. This is more prediction. You know. <laughs> You know, I, I've, I'm, I've just started writing a, an article series on Security Week called SOC Futures, where I'm going through different scenarios for this. And one of them is, is it overhyped? One of them is, is it as good as it is? Just as we think it is, right? As people are saying. The other one is, will it be regulated so that it doesn't get better? And the last one is, is this hype, you know, is this basically full acceleration AGI? My personal um, opinion based on having played with it, spoken to people who've worked with it, is that it's a fantastic technology. It's a breakthrough in terms of user experience. It's going to help with passing. Like this, this, this problem of converting from one schema to another solved with that. People haven't realized that it's solved. And classification. I, I've spoken to someone who is scraping what thousand websites, feeding it into one LLM, not, not GPT, a local one, classifying it, whether it contains insider risk. And it's then feeding back to another LLM to write up a post. So if you use it, if it's narrow, if it's trained, if it's focused on a single set, it's great. As soon as you let lay people start just putting random stuff into it, you're going to have to add guardrails. And I think those guardrails are going to prove as cumbersome as any guardrails we've had in the past, like application, allow listing, and so on. But it's a great technology. Is it overhyped? Yes. Yes. Man, it's like, <laughs> yeah, I, I believe. So I, I've read a few articles and I think they're quite right. A lot of tech companies are massively overvalued and they're hoping this is going to postpone the reckoning. And FOMO, fear of missing out. There are a lot of, lot of executive teams right now who are just thinking, shit, we need to run on this because, excuse my language, we need to jump on this because everybody else is, right? Um, but um, I think it's premature to, to leave it into production. I also think that the limitations aren't being made clear to people. It's being overhyped in the sense that people are being promised way more than it can do. Yeah. Richard, what are your, your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I th so on valuation, I think I think the company behind ChatGPT, $29 billion in 2023 so far. I mean, I mean, if you think about how long they've been around, that, that's an insane valuation. Um, but then you kind of look, what am I doing? I'm out there speaking to all the CISOs at the moment. Um, you know, I've had, I've dabbled in chat GPT and the others. And I think to Oliver's point on psychology, we, we have our reference points are skewed on what AI is, right? And our reference points are movies like Ex Machina, iRobot, Artificial Intelligence, the Space Odyssey, if you want to go all the way back to 2001 Space Odyssey, right? You know, where in those movies, these AIs are portrayed as, you know, highly accurate, highly sophisticated, sentient beings, which AI isn't, right? 
Um, and, and then you have to kind of look to, you know, the, the fact that as humans, we kind of inherently trust these technologies probably far too much. And we're not applying the, the old Russian proverb of trust, but verify. Um, because as I said, our reference points are skewed and, and, and that's kind of unfortunate. You know, and I, I don't think uh, Sophia, right, the AI robot has helped either because we looked at what Sophia was doing. We thought, oh my goodness, this is incredible. We can, can have an intelligent conversation with AI and it has humor. And so I think the industry doesn't understand that AI isn't that. It isn't those things that have been highly fabricated, highly tuned uh, to, to look like a Hollywood thing to, to, to the masses. And as a result of that, there's our risk, right? We, we we ask questions of Gen AI, get the answers, and we go on our own biases, right? Confirmation bias that AI is smart and clever out of the box, and it isn't, to, to Oliver's point. And then you know, the thing I want to add is you look at all these TikTok shorts and you go to YouTube, you look at people that are, you know, using AI or Gen AI tools to generate Python scripts and linear regression models in ML and PowerPoint presentations and all sorts, right? And you think, well, wow, gosh, I, I can use this. I don't have to go learn all these technologies. I can just use Genelite to do it for me. The reality is you can't because the people that are running these videos are, are experts in those fields. So they know what the outputs are looking look like. They know where the faults exist. They're just using this as a baseline to create something a little bit more sophisticated. But at the end of the day, they as the human are actually perfecting, you know, the, the imperfections of the outputs of Gen AI. So I think everybody has to understand, to Oliver's point, you know, it is there's a significant high false positive rate in Gen AI today. Yes, it will get better. Of course it will. But, you know, I, I think we're a number of years away from it getting to the point where it's truly production ready. So my, my first message is, be very careful. Do not rely on this. This is not the Hollywood AI that, that you've been brought up watching in movies. It is a way, way off of that, in, in my you know expert opinion. Just out of interest, I mean, what are the CISOs that you talk to been saying about it, Richard? Are they interested in it or do they have, hold similar kind of views where it's like, yeah, that's that's not what they're they're saying it is? Yeah, I, the, the general consensus at the moment, I mean, you get the odds, you know, number of CX levels that kind of think, oh, this is going to be the future. You know, we can hyper enable the workforce using Gen AI to, to get more stuff done in short periods of time. I'm, I'm not agreeing with that at the moment. Um, I'm a big advocate of Gen AI in certain types of professions. And SOC is one of them, but we'll come on to that, I'm sure, in a moment. In, in a moment. Uh, but they're all pretty much at arm's length. A lot of CISOs, CX levels are looking to really not use it in a in a production environment. They're happy for it to be in a, a research and development environment. Let's see how useful it can be. But they've got a lot of copyright and legal exposure risks. They're very, very concerned with data privacy violations and sensitive, sensitive information disclosure. What they're seeing in the R&D, and if you're a smart CX kind of team, you're going to be letting your your, your people go play with it in a, in a controlled R&D environment is they're, they're revealing company information in the questions they're asking Gen AI, and that data goes somewhere, and it's not within your company's sort of you know purview and ownership. So, so they're the big risks that, that CISOs are, are seeing, and they're, for that reason, a lot of them are really apprehensive at adopting this in the way that the industry is wanting us to do. But that, that does seem very chat GPT dependent, right? Because a lot of the vendors I'm, I'm talking to who are using it, they're not using ChatGPT. And, and even according to A16Z, so Andreas Norowitz said about 25% of the generative AI investments are using ChatGPT. It just gets you 
to market quicker, right? But if you're building the custom LLMs um, and some of the other vendors have started to offer tooling to help you limit your privacy exposure as well, right? But 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 you're right. I, I've heard the same thing from end users, and you're seeing it in the news. There's articles coming out of companies forbidding their their users by policy to not share stuff with ChatGPT. Well, I've had my stint with ChatGPT and Dali and all the rest of it with with certain limited success in certain respects. I mean, you know, it's great for checking grammar as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, <laughs> when it comes to generating anything worthwhile, I mean, I did do an interview with, with ChatGPT and I uploaded it. And it, it it surprised me in some of the responses, but you know you could tell that it was a very cookie cutter kind of responses. It wasn't wasn't giving you anything really intelligent, but you know as a bit of a kind of librarian, I found it pretty good. What's this content related to? Boom, come back and give you some references, which is great. You know, it's, it cuts down the amount of time you've got to got to go and look at things. I mean, I mean, I mean, so from a prompt engineering point of view, so I, I use it on a daily basis. I've been using it for about three or four months. I use it to help me with marketing because I'm a one man band. And um, what's interesting about it is the fact that I I'm now at a point where I have like a, a large sheet with my must messaging, all of my features, benefits, all that kind of stuff, which I feed in. And then I ask to have, turn that into a blog, turn that into a tweet, uh, contextualize it for this. So if you train it well, narrow application, you will review it. You use it as a, um, I would say, productivity tool, maybe a brainstorming tool. Because the other thing I do is I say, generate me five tweet titles. And out of five, 10, I can mix and match and I generally get something good out. And for me, it, it solves that blank page problem getting started, having something to, to, to work from, to iterate from, rather than starting from scratch. So it, it, it's definitely, don't go wrong, I love it. I think it, it's a huge step forward in yeah. terms of UX, almost like, 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 like the iPhone or something like that. But for security, I don't know. I, I, I think for the type of things that we wish it could solve, I don't think it's going to be as successful as some people are hoping it will be. But nevertheless, things like being able to query SQL without knowing SQL, that's a pretty neat use case, if you ask me. Mm. That's pretty cool. And doesn't rely on hallucination in the sense that you're querying a database and you get the result back. And I think that's the interesting thing to look at. People think it's a Wikipedia. Don't get fooled by the demo trained on public data. That's just showing you the potential. If you blindly trust what it says out, that's not what it was designed to do. This is a, this is to showcase the potential. Once you start applying it to a narrow use case, once you start saying, like automating it where the user doesn't necessarily interact, you say, whenever the data comes in, fit into this template, put a sentiment onto it, that kind of stuff. It works really well. But that is definitely not the human existence kind of risk that people are making it out to be. Yeah, and to your point, you know, when you do get that kind of paralysis of where do I start, what does this mean, Gen AI tools can help you get there quicker. And, and I think from a, a security use case perspective, that's not a bad thing, as long as you apply the trust but verify mantra, right? You say, okay, well, it's told me these are the things I'm looking at, right? I, I see some alerts come in, right? Let's use it from a SOC perspective. And I don't really understand what the alert is telling me because I'm a, a brand new analyst, fresh out of uni or from the school of hard knocks, depending on where you come in. And chat GPT, for example, and others, I don't want to make this chat GPT because we've done that to death, but will help me get more context of things I don't tr truly kind of understand. But here's the key thing. If you're using Gen AI to kind of enable 
you've got to have a level of knowledge. You can't just go in blind. And I think this is what's, this is the biggest risk to the industry. A lot of people I, I'm, I'm speaking to see, see these Gen AI tools as a way to almost be ignorant to the facts of what they're actually querying because they, they trust it inherently. They believe, you know, especially with some Gen AI tools, you know, now connect to the internet and their database is up to date as of 2021 stroke 22. They're using these tools and, and, and using it as gospel saying, oh, well, the answer must be true. Right? It must be correct. But it isn't. It's a foundation. It's, it's, it's an answer that you have to go and do more research on. But the good news is it kind of gets you to the point that you need to go and discover and do more analysis with quicker, in my experience. And I have used it in SOC environments, you know, in, in, in previous lives. Um, and it does give me answers. It does give me ideas that I probably didn't consider or, uh, or areas of analysis I could go into more deeply. I wouldn't have got there if I didn't have the knowledge. And this is the warning to users and to, to people that are going to allow, you know, these kinds of use cases. Make sure the people that are using them are educated to a good standard. And in those cases, Gen AI can be a very, very helpful kind of AI assistant, but it should never be the source of truth for, for any outcome. It's, it's really another avenue of investigation analysis, in, in my opinion. I think you're absolutely correct. Like keep an expert, keep a human on the loop. And the other thing is coming back to the narrow use case, you have a human who feeds in a number of events and you basically, you have a template for how your report comes out. It's a pretty safe process. You control what goes in. You can, you, you, you tell it what comes out. Quick review can save you a lot of time having to write it up manually, but that saves you how much time it doesn't, it doesn't automate the analyst away. Don't get me wrong. It, it's an annoying task to have to write something up. Like if you, for some people, some people enjoy it, right? But it's also, it's not an ROI task, let's say that way. And so automating that is great. But um, at that point, you just have a very sophisticated, well, parser, <laughs> essentially, right? Yeah, I, 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 I get, I, you know, whenever I use it, I kind of get the impression I'm kind of interacting with deep thought from Hitchhiker's Guide, where, you know, it spends ages coming up with the answer to the question, but then kind of refers you back to the question that's what you really want to ask and, and that's what you really want to use you know what is the question you're actually asking for and knowing what to ask can get you some some output that that is kind of helpful i tried using dali for instance and i got very mixed responses i mean i've seen some beautiful pictures being being released but it's like i'm obviously not right i'm not obviously not putting in the right thing i've, I've not got the syntax correct you, you mentioned the you know some key players in the security space implementing this already. What are they? What are their plans on using this for? I mean, as you say, it's great for prompts. It's great for brainstorming. It's great for maybe doing some grammar and clearing up things that you want to release. That kind of stuff. It's a good kind of little companion tool. But what are these big players? I mean, if they're releasing it already, what are, what are their intentions behind it? I mean, so most of the, the demos that you're seeing in the moment tend to focus on natural language interface. So being able to say, show me all of the hosts which have CVEX. Show me any, any, uh, any host which is susceptible to Outlook vulnerabilities. It's that kind of stuff. Show me which threat actors, based on our vulnerability profile, we are currently susceptible to. And if you think about it, these aren't very complex things from a query point of view. A lot of sims already have that stuff built in anyway in a form of dashboard or something. And whether natural language is really the most elegant form to attack with data, I'm not convinced. <laughs> um, you know, just like Alexa is great, but at the end of the day, I use it to, to set a timer and to, to, you know, to play music. 
no matter how many times Amazon wants me to interact more with it, it's a cumbersome way of interacting with many applications. In fact, my finger is quicker. Um, but that, those are the demos that we have right now. Um, the other thing is, uh, if you look at someone like Adivo as an example, they're using it to translate natural language into SQL queries. And generally, that's what it's being used for. You have a database and it's translating a natural language query into whatever database language is needed, whether it's SQL, whether it's it's blogs, SPL or something, whatever, right? That's the main usage in the moment. Is that groundbreaking revolutionary? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and uh, where it gets scary is going beyond cybersecurity, just briefly, James. I, I was speaking to an investor not only earlier this week in the telemedicine space, and they were absolutely hell-bent on the idea that uh, Gen AI is going to revolutionize the ability for patients to, to interact with their own data, right? And they said, you know, wouldn't it be great to have a capability where, you know, you could get some outputs medically and the, the patient could ask, what does this mean? You know, what, 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 what's the potential outcome of these variables, you know, heart rate, respiratory, things like that. And what everybody seems to be forgetting is, to Oliver's point, Gen AI tools, you know, they all have, they're very good at translating human query input into something that's very specific, and machine language is one example of that. You, 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 if you don't apply the right analytics behind what's feeding AI, you're putting yourself in a very dangerous situation. And it all comes back to me to kind of ML and, and, and the kind of true kind of learning algorithms that feed the, the data outputs that AI relies on to be accurate. And a lot of people in the industry seem to be forgetting that, that that middle proxy between the human interface for those predictive kind of things, Oliver, not, not the very static human to machine language queries, is, is where the biggest risks lie. AI is not predictive. It, doesn't, it isn't able to do that. We need to remember that we still need super smart data science capabilities at the core to make AI better at what it does in the long term. And so people really need to kind of think about what, the, what AI is and what it isn't. And I still think there's a massive misunderstanding in the industry is what it isn't. The interesting thing about this is that we have this tendency to anthropomorphize technology, right? People always, you know, some people, even their car. So it's easy to fool us into thinking something like this is actually smarter than a regression, regression algorithm that does normally detection. And it seems that way because of the way that it interfaces with us. It's a more natural, friendly way to interface with it. But in reality, it has, it's very, uh, I wouldn't say it's similar in approach, but it is similar in, in as much as it's a building block. This is one building block of many in the AI tool chairs, but you're going to need to build very complex, sophisticated programs and solutions, right? But right now, it is being sold as the penultimate. And I've heard people who think it's going to help with detection. I've heard people who think it's going to solve the false positive problem. Other people who are trying to automate it to do scanning and stuff where I'm like, no, man, it's, it's no smarter than a script. It just isn't yeah. smarter than a script. It just, it's just convinced. Oh, I'm going to say this. It, it's better convincing you that it's smarter. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I see it as like a, a good step in the right direction to where we're going with this technology. You know, I suppose in many respects, getting the ability to communicate with an AI eventually when we have actual AI and getting outputs that are meaningful is, is a really, really key aspect to, to utilizing that technology going forward. But as you say, there's a hell of a lot that needs to be developed under the under the hood. I think it was it you, Oliver, that put up the, the post on LinkedIn where 
somebody going in front of an investor or a VC or something, and all they did was just sit there going, AI, 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 and it was literally AI for about two minutes, nothing Google else. Google CEO, and somebody counted how many times he said AI in the actual talk and that the stock price went up, right? Um, <laughs> the, 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 the other joke going around is that in the moment, if you were if you were at any point working for OpenAI in the past years, you don't even need to provide a business proposal. You just need to give your name to get a check. Um, so it, it's, it's definitely, um, cool. I think but we should go and join OpenAI also, for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but the interesting thing to me is like, well, if you look at into this in the background, there's a gold rush going on. And the gold rush, actually, people making money is Amazon. Because Andres Horowitz have said that 80% of all of the investment in a generative AI startup goes on compute costs. They worked out that one training run on GPT, I think 3.5, costs somewhere between half a million to $3.8 million. One training run. Uh, uh, one session on ChatGPT takes about half a liter of water has been estimated, and the CO2 output from a training run of GPT-3 is uh, in excess, I think, of like 10 or 11 times what a human being consumes. We're going to have to reduce that if this is going to be a viable technology to be able to use. And that's the other question, right? ROI is not just based on capability. It's based on capability versus how much it costs. We haven't even spoken about the costs of this yet. Is it even affordable? Well, if I look at the rest of the security technology out there, probably not. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I've spoken to a number of, of, of CISOs over over the last sort of couple of years since the pandemic, and a lot of them are, are remarking about how the cost of some of the tooling that they, they want to put in so to build out their defense in depth has been dramatically increasing. And we were talking about one particular vendor who'd up their prices, you know, in the hundreds of percentage points, whether that was because they're in trouble or whether that's because, you know, all of a sudden they discovered that everybody wanted that technology and they felt they could up it by a couple of hundred percent. I just see AI, the, the, the moment anybody slaps AI on any product, it's like, right, now that's the justification for, for charging you half a million dollars or 10 million quid or whatever it's going to be. It's, I just see a massive hype train heading down towards security and, and we're going to be sat there as the professionals in this space going, it's not giving you anything more than, than it's a useful tool, but come on, guys. Um, I, so a lot of the reporting, if you if you follow this, there are there are different groupings of people. Right? After there is this one group who thinks that this is the end of humanity. There's this other group of people who think it's complete hype. Corey Doctoroff has said that that this is just it's just the next NFT, right? As an example, I've I've heard seen other journalists claim that it's just the tech bros trying to avoid a comeuppance in in down valuations, and other people think it's it's just the next step in evolution. It's interesting to see all, all of these all of these these different viewpoints about the same technology that we all have access to, right? That's one thing which I find utterly fascinating. I, I think if you ask me, this is evolution or revolution. If you've if you've used Grammarly before, I think this is like this is just the first pit that's production ready. That's really impressive. That's really good to use, right? And we're kind of at that point now. I think the other point which we're at is that everyone's doing the obvious use cases. If you give it 12 months, it's going to be in everything. But what's going to be interesting is once people start experimenting, once people start applying this to areas that we haven't thought about yet, which I think we haven't we haven't hit that yet. I think maybe the problem at the moment are the use cases. But to me, this duality of is it hype or is it revolution, I think misses the point. 
it could be both. It's a really cool breakthrough technology, but overhyping it is still going to have a negative impact on it because it's being pushed too quickly. I think it's both, right? It's really, and I think that to me is something which is pretty new because NFTs were obviously crap, right? But here you have a core of a technology, which is why I think there's such a divergence in opinions about it. The whole NFT thing, for instance, I mean, smart contracts, the ability to fractionalize pieces of art or uh, buildings or whatever. I mean, the concept behind it is fantastic and could be genuinely very beneficial depending upon your viewpoint on it. I know you've got a very specific view on things like cryptocurrency and I have a very, very different view. But when it comes to AI, I mean, I've always, I mean, I've read Ray Kurzweil. I've watched all the films, obviously, that we've all watched and love, like Terminator and all the rest of it. I don't think we're going down that route necessarily. But I see, uh, you know, that it's a significant technological advancement for us as a species, no matter what stage we're, we're hitting. And we're very much right at the beginning, tiniest little touch point that we could feasibly be at. With with the generative AI that we have at the moment, we're using it for funky things. I'll generate, you know, go to Dali and generate a wombat flying through space towards a black hole, and it'll give you something. I don't know what it'll give you, but there you go. Try putting that in the prompt, or it's good for for certain tasks and helping you refine certain things, and maybe helping you kind of hit something in your head to you know, like you do with the marketing. I'll give me five topics for for you know, good podcast you know, names, I could suppose I could use it for that. But we're far, far cry away from proper usage of it. And I, I do fear that with all the hype train coming down the right, it's just going to ruin innovation for this particular technology going forward because people will be like, oh, do you remember that hype train for, for AI? And, and now all of a sudden, you know, it's not what, it, you know, what we thought it was when we bought it. Anyway, I'll shut up and let Richard have a speech realistically, if you look at kind of the massive wave of interest that's been gathered and the, the freight train of hype that's kind of gained momentum, uh, but the, the smarter people in the industry are starting to realise, okay, these are its limitations um, and we, we need to work within that, right? And that comes around, the, these Gen AI tools inherently have a lack of explainability and interpretability, right? If you query how it knows what it knows, it doesn't tend to give you a very good answer to it. Because what generative AI platforms do is they group facts together, right, probabilistically. And that just goes back to the way that AI has kind of learned to associate data elements with one another. That brings a trustworthiness problem um, to the data that you're getting from it. And as long as you know that, to, to, to Oliver's point, then you can work within the confines of what these Gen AI tools are going to give you. And I think organizations, if they're going to start to adopt Gen AI within human resources teams or security operations teams or legal teams, they've got to do operator training, right? You, you learn how to interact with these tools, learn how learn what persona you want the Gen AI tool to take and then, you know, curate the inputs and outputs and, and get to a point where you have enough to go and build a credible fact-based response off the back of it. So, um, you know, we, we're still in a point where, we, you know, we, we get a plausible answer. Uh, we don't really get anything that's concrete. And, and as long as you know there's that level of untrustworthiness, right, within AI systems, 
then you, you're okay. If, if you come with that mindset, you're not going to get burnt, I hope. It's certainly not going to cost you your livelihood. I think those that see it, as, as, as I said earlier, the gospel and truth, you're at risk, really, of making some big errors in the industry and potentially causing yourself some challenges. So, you know, that's kind of my view on it. Be smart about what it can and can't do and, and go and do your homework on, on how it learns and, how it, and what the outputs are so that you don't fall foul of, of the trap that, that, uh, you know, that I've just explained. I mean, I mean, very much so because, like, one of the things which you outline points to the fact that five years down the line, this hyper-specialization is going to be rarer. You're going to see neo-generalists. You're going to have to be a generalist across various different areas to be able to interact with an LLM, to be able to get it to do all of the different work that you need it to do. Because we always think that the person is able to ask the questions. In my experience, most people don't know what questions to ask. As a Gartner analyst, that was part of my job to spend the first 10 minutes working out with a client what they were actually trying to find out. And so I'm not necessarily convinced that it's going to make it easier for everybody. There are certain types of people who are going to thrive with this. Um, but there are two, like for me, there are two really interesting insights out of the entire thing. The first one is that you don't need to be anywhere near AGI to be disruptive and to cause huge societal disruption this is about five to ten percent maybe towards that area and look at the chaos it's already causing we have the writer's strike in the us as an example there we you know the copyright topic is a completely different one we're not using images in the company because i don't want to have to identify every image 18 months later when the copyright case gets lost in court if so we're just avoiding that, that, that minefield as an example, right? So, so the, the, the legal aspects already, and if you think about the regulation driver, the US is talking about regulating, it's only just brand new. So, so in other words, you don't need to be very sophisticated with technology to have a huge disruptive impact. This is what you're seeing with this. The other thing is that you also don't need to have AGI to have a Terminator, James. The interesting thing is that once you're being chased by a smart bomb, you don't care if it's conscious or not. It doesn't need to be. It can be pretty dumb and still get you. What's interesting is, or what's no, what's critical is who controls that. And that's the thing which we need to we need to think about. Yeah, who controls this? Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the which leads me into this. You know, and I've been pretty disappointed in big tech for the last forever, really. But but more so since since certain issues with a certain virus of unknown origin that one wormed its way around the world and put us all into lockdown, you know, with the whole, you can't debate this, you can't talk about this, we're going to sanitize this kind of, of, of input or output or videos that you post or, or content that you talk about, because we don't want you talking about it. Aren't we in danger with, with AI? Bearing in mind that it's not like you can just sort of pick up the bare bones and train it against the data set that you want to train it against at the moment. It's not as, as easy as that. You need some pretty significant compute power, as you mentioned earlier on. So we go, are we going to end up relying on Microsoft's version of reality and IBM's version of reality and not get what we need? You know, we... So this is something. This is actually a content I was going to put in another podcast. I hate being called a pessimist, and I hate being called an optimist. And to quote Doctor Who, I, I'm a big Doctor Who fan of back in the day, not the modern one, the older one. There was a, there was a scene where Canine turned around and said, "Optimism and pessimism is bordering on insanity," and they're right. 
it was absolutely right back in the 1970s as much as it is now you know i i i base my facts on facts i base it on reality what's the reality of the situation and when i do instant response and i train it with people i i keep pulling people back saying stop taking the opinions of others and start looking at the reality behind it and what the facts are with our generative ai though we don't know what they've been trained on they we get told roughly what they've been trained on but i mean for instance this video goes live on spotify goes live, uh, live on apple but it also goes live on youtube now each one of them got their set guidelines with certain things we can talk about and certain things we're not allowed to talk about certain things where we're going to get a nice little check mark that says you know here are the facts about this particular thing and none of them really agree and you can't talk, you can't criticize certain people you can't criticize certain groups you can't talk about certain topics are we going to be heading down to this route with with AI whereby we're not going to be able to do what we really want to do because a it's going to be trained by somebody else who is providing the information they think we want to know or they want us to know b it's going to be out of so out of our reach because the cost to to actually train our own one you know, it's not like you can just download to your local machine and say, right, go out and analyze everything there is to know about, I don't know, Greek uh, mythology. Um, where where are we with this? I mean, it's is. I just got the. I just. I hate. I hate the thought that big tech are going to be in control of this, and we're all going to be sat there consuming whatever we're we're given. So I, I, I believe it's not as bad as that. Personally, I, again, if you work smarter on this, so you know. ChatGPT, for example, and all these platforms have the ability uh, through their own uh, APIs to integrate your own learning models and outcome systems, right? So what I think is the smart businesses are going to uh, use their own data gathering silos, their own machine learning capabilities and functions, and have have these Gen AI systems integrate with those to be specific to their business needs. And then they're basing it on facts or truths that they know to be true. Sorry to you know, uh, repeat myself in the same sentence. In a controlled, contained environment that, that, that doesn't rely on you know, the internet. And most of the internet's garbage. And if you believe anything you read half the time, you really need to check your own, your own understanding of reality. And everybody that's using ChatGPT4 that connects to the internet in the beta version it must realize that whenever you ask it, 90% of what it's referring to is garbage. So most of the businesses that are going to be doing this properly are going to be creating data access APIs into these generic platforms, data processing APIs, um, and doing query response generation based upon that data, and then maybe connecting to the generic data sets to maybe do some checks and balances. So as long as you approach it that way, and I don't know if Oliver agrees or disagrees, I think you're starting to use Genoa in a smarter way, in the way that probably should be used in a business environment. Do you think it's going to be cost prohibitive, though, for, for smaller organisations? Because this, this, this sounds all horribly, horribly expensive. And great if you're a multi-hundred million you know, two hundred million trillion dollar organization, but it's going to be pretty rubbish if you're a quarter of a million pound operation trying to make your capability a little bit more streamlined, so to speak. I mean, I'll be honest because Oliver will give you a far better answer than I will. Um, <laughs> I can see him wait. I can see him just 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 champing at the bit. Um, but the, the good news about you know ChatGPT, for example, is if you do the data access APIs and the API integration you're not paying for their 
AI engine to integrate with your data. You're paying for what your data is to get to their API. But the companies that are going to be using their own machine learning arrays and so on, they're, they're normally very large enterprise type businesses with significant budgets to invest in this. So you're right, it's going to become the the playing field of, of, of the rich and very well-funded organizations leaving, you know, those small, smaller businesses, those startups to be the bottom feeders of the, the 90% garbage data that these tools refer to. So I think you're right. It's going to create a very different dynamic in industry. And, and that in of itself is a big risk, actually, a big challenge. It's it's almost the, you know, the, the rich versus the poor in, in society. I think it's going to become more of that. So we need to find a way around it. I don't know the answer, but I think it's a big risk. I agree to an extent with Richard. I, I, I personally believe that most people, they want bias. They just want their bias to be reflected. And that's how consumers work. And there will be different people offering them models with different biases off the shelf. I also think that um, from a training perspective or cost perspective, I, I mentioned you know the costs earlier, but realistically, you can run smaller models on a phone, on a desktop PC. People are doing it. You just need a GPU. Um, for me, there's this bifurcation. If you're well off or you have skills, you're going to have a custom built model. If you're poor, you're going to have to deal with whatever off the shelf model you have to interact with instead of a human being, because that's going to happen. If you're, if you're on benefits, if you're basically dealing with it with, I don't know, with the electricity board or something, you're going to end up interacting a lot with these things because at that point, it's like a monopoly. You don't have a choice. And so I expect that to grow. It's going to be dystopian for some people. They're going to have to interact with these for the most part, right? And then there's going to be this middle area where you can afford like an app, which allows you to customize a little bit, but that's going to be limited on how much you train yourself. Most people are not going to be good at training an ML model, right? So they're looking for often, they're looking for information. I think that's the other way around. So I think it's going to be very mixed, um, which is why I think regulation, societal responses are going to be really more important than technical capability almost, you know. Do you think this is all going to get horribly ruined by governments getting involved in what we can and what we can't? Yeah, because we've seen this whole kind of negative comment on AI in general. And I don't necessarily disagree with it in many respects because we've all seen what happens when idiots get hold of technology the, the way it's been used we're going to start seeing a hell of a lot more regulation you know it's natural this is what people are talking about and this is what people are, are having fears over you know they do fear the terminator thing personally i'll embrace it i'll upload myself into the singularity yeah screw that you know get rid of this meat body but uh <laughs> we're, we're on the cusp of such a good set of technology even if we look at generational ai before we start hitting you know future generations of it and then hopefully finally somewhere down the line true ai emerges you know but we could horribly screw this up in the in the in the journey to that final level of technology and that's what i worry about that's what i'm concerned about i mean all these companies are jumping on the bandwagon and and running down the hype train at the moment, they're just going to look like idiots in the long run when actual usage of this technology comes out and some of the tooling that they're developing. Saying, look, we've got AI. It's like marketing have chucked AI badge on the side. Let's go and charge it, you know, half a million quid for it. And then, of course, we'll sit there and use it and go, what is this? I think legislation as it stands is, is, is a patchwork exercise in Gen AI at the moment. I, I know governments have been a little bit slow off the mark to 
and that's generally down to a lack of their understanding of its impacts and, and where do you start the controls? In which industry do you kind of hyper-focus because, because it presents the biggest risk? And governments are more concerned about risk to nations, to state and, and to, to budget, right? So it's always going to start in those areas. You know, I think the European Union are, are making some good steps, you know, I mean, or the Commission is kind of proposing a framework, an AI framework, which is kind of in big discussion at the moment. I think it's uh, Article 144 in the US, which is started out of, of various discussions. So there's, there's, there's what I call patchwork processes in place, but we really are a long way off, I think, a, a viable, impactful legislation framework for Gen AI because it's just such a mammoth of a technology and, and problem at the moment that it's almost becoming difficult. To, where do you start? And in my opinion, from at least what I'm seeing out there in the field, I don't know what Oliver thinks. What are we legislating? Are we legislating the, the copyright infringement from the training or are we legislating the hype around the existential threat? That's my biggest fear. We're going to regulate against something that's just in the minds of people who, for the most part, don't even understand how the technology works. And another AI winter, each AI winter cost us. And each time the problem was unrealistic expectations. It set us back years because for, for the next five to 10 years, people are reluctant to fund it. But this is an iterative improvement. We're not going to have a light jump from this to this, which is what some people I think are expecting. Iteration means you keep on improving. So the biggest fear for me is that we're regulating the wrong thing and for the wrong reasons. At the same time, the copyright infringement, you know, if 300,000 people lose their job, it's a personal tragedy. 3 million people lose their job, it's a national security incident. And I think that's also going to decide how we regulate it. That fear is realistic. The writer strike in, in the US is a very good example where they're afraid of being replaced with AI and they're not getting any assurances that they're not. Right. So, so, so it's already starting. This is not a hypothetical. But I'm guessing the bosses out there are thinking, how can I utilize AI to do the job of that? Because it's cheaper to do it, you know, with an AI than it is to employ people yeah. and go through all the rigmarole of having to look after those people and so on and so forth than it is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. I genuinely do. But I mean, you know, AIs aren't exactly creative, really, are they? I mean, they're not going to. Nor people. You're overestimating most people aren't. And most creativity is just recombination of other ideas. That's one of the three forms of which, which AI, but, but uh, I keep hearing this, well, it doesn't do novelty. 90% of the people I speak to never have an original thought. No, I agree with you on that. And so I don't know why we're putting that benchmark on an AI. It's not necessary to build a good business. It's not necessary to succeed in life. Why should it be necessary for an AI? You just need to be good enough. Right. And, and for many use cases, it's surprisingly good enough that and that's the danger. It makes you think it, it, it's, it's, it almost has a Dunning-Kruger built in because it makes you think it's more competent in other areas. It's just a useful tool. <laughs> yeah, I, I love it. Don't get me wrong. But it, we're discussing what people expect from it rather than what it is. Right. You know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, legislation's a way off, isn't it? You've got the AI Act of the European Union. I believe it's still in consultation. You got in GDPR. How does that refer to AI? Well, it doesn't really. It just talks about you have to let people know that AI is is being used in particular kind of data interaction environments. You have to still adhere to the personal identifiable information rule sets. So there's no one particular legislation yet. No, that, no, that no, really... no, 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 no. There's an issue. It's it's uh, it's uh, try removing trained data from a model. 
and there mm. have been attacks where people have been able to leak private, personally identifiable information from train models. So, so yeah. I, I, yeah, so I, I think that that's that's the that comes back to the explainability and the interpretability, right? <laughs> Lack of yeah, yeah, and I think you know, James, if if there's one thing you know, if, if you're a decision maker listening to this podcast, you take away it's it, we're in our infancy, the beginning of the, the, the peak of adoption, we haven't even got a, a first step on that, really got to consider as a business, we're going to adopt this, A, should you, and B, if you're going to do it, what's the best way to do it? But the thing is, the, the interesting thing there is, right, so why aren't we slowing down? The EU takes the stance that we need to evaluate the impact before we just rush out. And the reason why businesses and why some countries aren't taking that caution is because they believe they're in a competitive situation. The US won't slow down because Chinese won't slide out, slow down. We're not going to slow down because our competitors won't slow down and so on. And that's why you need regulation to artificially create that, that break. On a geopolitical level, I, we, we, that agreement is not there. But at least on a um, business level, you think it should be. It sounds like we're going to be talking about this for the next couple of uh, segments, really, as a general rule, because we have reached the end of our time. It's been really good. It's been really interesting. And I think for, for those of you out there watching this, we're probably going to end up speaking about this on a regular basis. I just can't, I just can't see it, it changing anytime soon. But um, no, cheers, Richard, Oliver. As always, it is an absolute pleasure to sit down and have a chat with you guys over matters like this i think it's really important not just for the security space but uh really for business at large because it affects us pretty much every aspect of of where we're going you know one way or another in the long term but i think if the central message i think we've all kind of agreed is don't don't get on the hype train don't buy that first iteration at half a million billion quid per product wait and see how it pans out first and to all of you out there Thank you ever so much for sitting through and listening to us talk about um, subject matters like AI, that kind of thing. It's always an absolute pleasure to get some of the comments that we get through LinkedIn or directly via email, whatever. It's it's absolutely fantastic to see the adoption. Um, we've hit 6,000 subscribers and we keep increasing in, in little chunks. We've got plenty of other technologies that we're probably going to talk about, many of them related to AI, no doubt, by the sounds of it. So, Oliver, Richard, you look after yourself. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast. If you like the podcast, if you love the podcast, please feel free to subscribe. And if you have any questions, please get in touch. Thank you very much and have a great day.